Hey, speak of the family. So, is that a cowbell? So anyway, uh, if you have your book, if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to the book of Exodus. And for those of you uh, maybe just joining in, um, we are launching into a real Bible study. We are really just studying the books of the Bible. And uh, it's not going to be academic, but it's meant to be instructive. And like I think I said on Sunday, I may not have a lot, we may not have a lot of bells and whistles and frills as a church, but the one thing we're going to try to do, whether it's on somebody's doorknob or it's in the Bible study time, is we're going to try our best to give you the Bible. Because the Bible is what's going to make a difference in your life. The Bible is what's going to show you the way of salvation. The Bible is going to help you through those valleys. The Bible is the way of life, the Bible says. It's the way of life. So we're going to get into the second book of our Bible. If you want to go to Exodus 17, we're going to start there, Exodus 17. And uh, you could flip around with me if you want. And if you can't flip as fast as I'm flipping out, yeah, I'm flipping, then you can just sit there and listen. So... Uh, The book of Exodus, just some vital statistics on the book of Exodus. It's got 40 chapters, the number of testing. It's got uh, 1,213 verses. It's got 32,685 words. I know if you can't see that, it's okay. But uh, every word of God is pure, the Bible says, so that's why I'm giving you those numbers. And I would recommend to you, if you've got a wide margin Bible or some space in your Bible, you can write these things in and around the relative chapters of your Bible. Because when you're talking to somebody, you're probably not going to reach for that notebook on your desk. But if you have it in your Bible, uh, you have your own study Bible. The best study Bible you'll ever have is the one you make yourself. Right, So you could buy one, and that's cool, and some of them are really nice, but that's somebody else's meal that God gave them. If you start to put this stuff into your own Bible and work it in yourself, it becomes like yours, and then you like you internalize it and know it. Now, it's the second book of Moses, and if you look at Exodus 17, verse 14, I just want to show you how clearly it's testified in the Bible that Moses is the author. Right, Exodus 17, 14, the Bible says, And the Lord said unto Moses, Write this for a memorial in a book, and rehearse it in the ears of Joshua, for I will utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. There's one verse about that. Look at chapter 24. Look at chapter 24 and look at verse 4. Chapter 24, verse 4. Same, same idea that Moses wrote the book, Exodus 24, 4. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord and rose up early in the morning and built an altar under the hill, etc., etc. Moses wrote all the words of the Lord. Moses is clearly the author. And let's go to one more chapter, chapter 34, verse number 27. Chapter 34, verse number 27, the Bible says, <clears throat> And the Lord said, uh, unto Moses, write thou these words, for after the tenor of these words I have made a covenant with thee and with Israel. So it is the great book of redemption. If there's one word you want to remember about Exodus, it's redemption. And even the word Exodus, it comes from that same word that we get the word exit from, right? That prefix ex, Exodus. Exit. You express yourself. Something comes out of you. When you exit, you get out of a room. 
when you express yourself, you're getting an emotion out of you. So this book is all about getting out of the world and getting into God. That's really what it is, a book of redemption, of God taking you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. It's a glorious book. I'm going to do my best to give it justice. I'm probably going to fail miserably, but I hope the things I could throw at you today would be something to make you marvel in your Bibles and marvel at this book specifically. It begins in darkness, right? The book of Exodus begins in darkness, right? It begins with God coming down in grace to an enslaved people. It ends in glory. It ends with God coming down in glory to a redeemed people. He comes down in the beginning, and then when they set up the tabernacle, they come down at the end. He comes down at the end. There's these two moments where God really comes down to visit them. The first time is to deliver them by grace. The second time is to show up in glory. It's an amazing book. And um, it covers, now we said last week that Genesis covers, what, 4,000 B.C. to about 1570 B.C., and the rest of your books, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, cover about 1570 to 1450. So that all those books together make up about 80 years, and Exodus is about 40 of those years. And there are two great prophecies pertaining to Exodus. I'm going to ask you to Genesis chapter 15. Two great prophecies pertaining to Exodus, meaning predictions God made that came true in Exodus. Genesis 15. And I know, you know, my wife said the other day, she's like, oh, you got like a curriculum now. I said, yeah, I guess I know what I'm talking about for the next 64 weeks. But um, I don't want this to be too dry, but I want to lay a few things out here. Two great prophecies pertaining to Exodus. The first one is in Genesis 15. Look at verse number 13. The Bible says, God speaking to Abram. And he said unto Abram, know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not there and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge, and afterward they come, shall they come out with great substance, and thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace, thou shalt be buried in a good old age. First prophecy is of Abraham's descendants would be in bondage in Egypt. God said that hundreds of years before they even went to Egypt. God told Abram, your descendants are going to go down to a nation, and we know that's Egypt, and become Slaves there. That's the first prophecy. Go to Hosea. If you could find that, congratulations. But Hosea is a prophet. He's towards the end of the Old Testament, uh, right before the book of Joel. He's like, that doesn't really help, Pat. But uh, (laughs) Daniel, Hosea, Hosea 11. Hosea 11.1. I'm just trying to show you there's these two great prophecies. The first one in Genesis, how they would go into Egypt. And this one, Hosea, that they would come out of Egypt. Hosea 11.1. When Israel was a child, then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. God is prophesying that he would deliver his son out of Egypt. Now that verse is a double application. It is also applied to Jesus Christ in the book of Matthew that he was out of Egypt, have I called my son. But remember, Israel is God's corporate son. So he says, I'm going to call my nation, who he calls his son, out of Egypt. So Jesus Christ is always pictured as somebody in every book of the Bible. Remember in the book of Genesis, what was he pictured as? Who remembers from last week? 
He wasn't pictured as a typified by Adam, but what was like the likeness? We said he was the promised Seed. He was a seed because Genesis is about beginnings. In this book, Jesus Christ is our Passover. Uh, the Bible says even our Passover, Jesus Christ, was crucified for us in 1 Corinthians. So the Lord Jesus Christ is pictured as our Passover. And those are just some vital statistics. Let's get into now a basic breakdown of Exodus. Exodus is just amazing. I mean, it's just really amazing. It breaks down a number of different ways I'll give you. The first breakdown is that it breaks down into two aspects of redemption. Chapters 1 to 14 are when Israel comes out of Egypt, right? Amen? That's a picture of the bondage of our first birth, right? Because you were born into bondage, amen? You were born a sinner, right? You didn't grow up and at seven years old, you like time to become a sinner. You were born a sinner and finally that sin began to manifest itself. It's like if you put a seed in the ground for an apple tree, it'll grow and it takes a little bit of time and then you start to see apples and then somebody makes the dumb joke and says, well, how do you like them apples? And then you get in trouble. But it's the same thing, like that little baby in a bassinet looks very innocent, but give it time, five years, 10 years, 15 years, you'll see the sin that that sinner will bear and and you're born into bondage and chapters 1 to 14 are really about the slavery, the rigor, the cruelty and the bitterness that the children of Israel went through. It's a picture of the bondage of our first birth. It leaves us trapped. It leaves us slaves to sin. It leaves us just at the mercy of this taskmaster called sin and Bible says whosoever committed sin is the servant of sin and we just we're serving that master and we're trying to break free but have you ever had that experience before you were saved that you just couldn't? You like you maybe tried to turn over a new leaf for a few days or weeks or months, but you always seem to gravitate back to the same vices? It's because by nature, we were children of wrath. By nature, we were conceived in sin. And the beginning of the book of Exodus pictures that. But then the second part of Exodus, chapters 20 to 40, really talk about Israel now getting commandments, getting a priesthood, coming out of Egypt chapters 1 to 14, and coming into a nation, coming into a people that God would want to dwell in and work in and fellowship with. That shows the blessing of the second birth. That's why Jesus said, ye must be born again. That's not a church to join. That's a moment in your life when you have to get born into God's family the way you were born into the devil's family and into Adam's family. You've got to get born again into God's family. And the second half of the book is about the second birth. It pictures the blessings of the second birth. And we can interpret the book of Exodus three different ways. Like you could interpret any part of your Bible three different ways. You can historically read it because it historically happened. We could go through the library here and if it wasn't so ghetto, we'd find like a book, you know, about the history of Israel and we could go to a library and find out about the departure of Israel from Egypt in time, it happened, right? It's not a fable, it happened. So on one level, the book is a historical account of the departure of Israel from Egypt several thousand years ago. Spiritually, as a Christian, if you're a Christian, say amen. amen. Right? Spiritually, we could take things about it. It's about our deliverance from sin through the blood of the Lamb and the new life God gives us. That's a spiritual application we can all talk about. And Doctrinally, for if you really want to know your Bible, doctrinally, it's the details 
of the Great Tribulation and the Second Coming of Christ. It's all in the book of Exodus. Doctrinally, it's about the future when that nation finds her Messiah. So Moses then is a type of Christ. He's trying to deliver God's people. Amen. And Pharaoh is a type of the Antichrist, and he's working to destroy God's people. And the plagues are a picture of all the things that will come upon the world during the Great Tribulation. And notice that that nation of Israel that's faithful to God will be hidden, just like they will people be hidden and protected supernaturally in the future Great Tribulation. So that's a little overview. And then if you just want a simple, simple little breakdown, breakdown, Chapters 1 to 19 are the narrative. That's the chronicle of Israel's dealings with God. Getting called out, getting rescued. And the second half of the book, 19 to 40, is all legislative. That's the part we fall asleep on. Because that's all the commandments that God gives to Israel. Don't do this. If the ox falls in the pit, do that. If somebody dies, measure it this far and see who is you know, responsible for it. A lot of that stuff is in the book of Exodus, the legislation that God wanted to give a nation. Because if you're going to be a nation, you've got to have laws. So as a nation, they got some laws. So that's like the boring stuff, right? That's like the basic bait breakdown. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to flip this around, whether you're ready, whether you're ready or not. And... Uh, I want to get now into the pictures of the book of Exodus. Go to Philippians chapter 1 with me in your New Testament if you could. All right. Do you see this okay? Is that right? All right, let me do this. When the Lord gives us a building, I want like a really big whiteboard behind me so I could write and draw and doodle and do all kinds of stuff. Uh, Philippians 1.6. We're talking now about Bible pictures in Exodus. What does it picture about us? Thank you, Pat, for all the information that it showed me. But how do I, what does it mean about us and my life now as a Christian? Um, Philippians 1.6, the Bible says, Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Meaning, when God saves you, He starts a work in you. And He's going to complete that work until the day He sounds the trumpet, gives you a new body, and takes you home. Now, why am I bringing up a verse in the New Testament when we're about to go through this Old Testament book? Because Exodus gives an amazing picture of your deliverance and your new life in Christ. How God works in your life now, how He's fulfilling Philippians 1.6 now is all pictured in the book of Exodus. It's remarkable. It's amazing. It really shows you that God might have written the Bible. I keep saying that, but you're going to see that in a little bit. So let's all all the way back to Exodus chapter 2, and let's break it down. There are 12 pictures, and I'm going to hurry through most of them and park on some of them. Exodus chapter 2. We'll be in Exodus a lot now, so you won't get lost, right? What is the first picture that we get in the book of Exodus? Well, if it's about God's deliverance of us and our new life, the first picture we get is a picture of the lost man. Chapters 1 to 3 picture the lost man who has been born into bondage. 
That's where we find the nation of Israel, and that's where you start this book of Exodus in your life when you realize that you've been born into bondage and that you're a slave to sin. That's what the first three chapters are about. Look at Exodus 2, verse 23. The Bible says this, Exodus 2, 23. The Bible says, And it came to pass in process of time that the king of Egypt died and the children of Israel sighed by reason of the bondage. And they cried, and their cry came up unto God by reason of the bondage. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God had respect unto them. You know, your life and your walk with God doesn't really begin until you get sick of sin. Right, until you start to sigh and realize, God, I want something better. I'm tired of this failure. I'm tired of this bondage. I'm tired of this sin. You know what? Then God starts to show up in your life. But if you're happy, Dory, and everything's okay, and you don't need God, God's a gentleman. God will just stay out of your life. But the children of Israel here feeling the bondage, like maybe you felt the bondage. I felt the bondage 24 years ago. I was 24 years old on this great scholarship to this great school and afraid to wake up the next morning because I thought if I died in my sleep, I would go to hell. I know how crazy that looks to you because that's how I felt and that's how I felt about myself. I would sigh every day and have these panic attacks and I would be like, what is going on? Why am I thinking this way? And God just squeezed me and he said, you're mortal, you're a sinner, your heart is black as the ace of spades and you're going to go to hell if you die right now. And it just squeezed me and in crying out to God, the Lord began to move in my life. But I had to first realize that I was lost. And you've got to first realize that you're lost. That's what the book of Exodus tells us that. And then what happens? Look at the beautiful picture. Chapters 4 to 6, who shows up next? Moses. Moses the deliverer, right? Amen? And so just, right, God sees them sighing and he sees them crying. So what does he send? He sends them a deliverer. Just like he sent Jesus Christ into your life. And Moses is a great type of Christ. In fact, if you want to hold your place there... In Exodus, just put a finger or a foot or like Phil's arm in there and just want to turn to uh, Deuteronomy 18. I'm just volunteering you, Phil. Deuteronomy 18. Everybody's got a ministry. Deuteronomy 18. Some are just to be fingers to hold a page. Deuteronomy 18. Just hold your place in Exodus and go to Deuteronomy 18, which is the fifth book of the Bible. Look at verse 15. Look what the Lord says here. He says, This is Moses speaking. He's giving a prophecy. He tells the children of Israel, The Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet, capital P, from the midst of thee, of thy brethren, because Jesus Christ would be Jewish, like unto me, unto him ye shall hearken. So Moses is a forerunner and a preview of Jesus Christ. There are at least seven likenesses between Jesus Christ and Moses. Right? Because... Jesus Christ was going to be a prophet like unto Moses. So if you're taking notes, I'm going to give you seven things in which Moses was like Jesus Christ. Moses would deliver them from Egypt, and Jesus Christ is going to deliver the nation of Israel from the Great Tribulation. Let's look at one of them. One of them, number one, he was chosen by God. Wasn't Jesus Christ chosen by God? He's God's elect servant, right? Number one, he was chosen by God. Number two, He was almost killed at his birth, right? Moses was almost killed by Pharaoh, and Jesus Christ was almost killed by Herod, right? They were both threatened when they were very young. Number three, 
the deliverer, Moses and Jesus, takes a Gentile bride. Moses takes a Gentile bride named Zipporah, an Ethiopian, and Jesus Christ takes a Gentile bride, the church, right? Both taking a Gentile bride. What am I up to? Four? They both feed their people with manna, bread from heaven. Moses gives them literal manna, right? Exodus 16. And Jesus Christ said, I am the bread from heaven, right? I am that true bread from heaven. Jesus Christ fed his people as well with bread from heaven. How about another one? What am I up to? Five? Five. They both die before they get their people into the land. They both die before they get their people into the land. Moses dies on Mount Pisgah. And Jesus Christ dies on Mount Calvary both before Israel gets all the blessings that Israel is promised. Number six, he is rejected the first time he comes. Both Moses and Jesus. Look at Exodus 2, verse number 14, right? This is Moses' rejection the first time, 2.14. And he said, this is one one of the fellow Hebrews, and he said, Who made thee a prince and a judge over us? Intendest thou to kill me as thou killest the Egyptian? And Moses feared and said, Surely this thing is known. Man, Moses is rejected as ruler over his brethren, and he runs away and he takes that Gentile bride. What a picture of Jesus Christ, who is rejected by his brethren. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. And in that rejection, hey, look at yourselves. He's taken a bunch of Gentiles to be his bride. Amen? Keep going. One was number seven. Look at Exodus chapter four. He's accepted the second time. The second time Moses shows up after that 40-year hiatus, the nation of Israel welcomes him and believes him and embraces him as deliverer. Jesus Christ may have been rejected the first time, but when he comes again, they're going to look upon him whom they have pierced, and they're going to accept him, that remnant. Look at uh, Exodus 4.30. Uh, and Aaron spake all the words which the Lord had spoken unto Moses and did signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel and that he had looked upon their affliction, then they worshiped, bowed their heads and worshiped. There they are accepting Moses a second time like Jesus Christ is accepted the second time. Isn't it? You think these things are just an accident. Like somebody just made these up. Like, oh, you're making that up. I didn't make this up. God wrote this up. God conceived this. All right, and I'm just, I'm just getting warmed up. Right, I'm just getting started here. So that's our second big picture. Our third big picture is chapters 7 to 11. Hey, if you realize you're in bondage and God sends a deliverer, who's going to be right on his tail? Pharaoh, the adversary. Because the adversary is always going to oppose your deliverance. There is a devil and a creature out there. He's real, and his forces do not want you to get saved if you're not saved, and they do not want you to get all the way in and serve God if you are saved. So once you see the deliverer show up, right on the heels of the deliverer is Pharaoh the adversary. And you know what he does? He wants to stop you from going to worship God, and he will give you all kinds of excuses for why you shouldn't worship God. I'll show you four of them. These four great excuses that Pharaoh gives Moses, and I hope they don't rub a little too close to the cotton, because they're excuses that we all tell ourselves and we entertain ourselves. Let me give you excuse number one, right? Go to Exodus chapter 8. Let me show you excuse number 1. Look at verse number 25. Compromise number 1 that the devil tries to use on you to keep you from serving God. Uh, Moses tells him, let my people go. 
And in Exodus 8.25, And Pharaoh called for Moses and for Aaron and said, Go ye, sacrifice to your God in the land. He says, serve God in Egypt. Don't leave Egypt. Don't leave the world. Stay in the world. See how he's trying to get you to compromise? That's the first compromise. Don't leave the world. Stay in the world. You can go to church if you want once in a while, but just stay in the world. Keep being worldly and have your little Jesus cake too on the side. That's what the devil will tell you. You don't have to give anything up. Just stay where you are. Do your stuff. Go out on Saturday night. Go to church a little late. Nobody will know the better. They'll just be happy you're there. The world is telling you. The devil is telling you that. Does that bother anybody? Because that's like a really good excuse I think he likes to use, right? But no man can serve two masters, right? So that's, it. that's compromise number one. Serve God in Egypt. How about go to, chap- go to the same chapter and look at verse 28. 28. Here's compromise number two. You say, God, I want to serve God. I want to be delivered. I want to see God's redemption. Here's what he's going to say to you now. And Pharaoh said, I will let you go that you may sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, only ye shall not go very far away. Entreat for me. Compromise number two, don't go too far. Don't become a fanatic. Don't be one of those Jesus freaks. Don't be like Patton on those guys on the corner holding up Bible signs. Those guys are whacked out, man. No, just, you know... Just stay in your little Jesus box and don't be fanatical. Don't give any money. Don't give any time. Don't go to church. You're going to church on a Thursday? Who goes to church on a Thursday? Don't be so fanatical. You're going to go to church on a Saturday morning? You're going to go to church on a, on a Sunday morning? You're going to go to a camp? You guys are nuts. Yeah. You know, there's some people around New York now going nuts because a bunch of guys can hit a little cylinder into a net and they're all screaming and freaking out because they're playing hockey and guys are doing well. How about getting a little crazy for Jesus, huh? How about getting a little excited and having a little zeal for the one that burned in hell and had his soul made an offering for your sin? I think he's worthy of a little bit of effort. We're a bunch of lazy, loafing pigs. I'll speak to myself. We're so lazy, right? If the weather rolls the wrong way, you're like, oh, I can't leave. You know, right? I'm just being honest with you, right? Jesus Christ climbs up on a cross, has them nail these things into his hand. He didn't say, Father, just let off on me a little bit. I need a little break, right? And Jesus Christ lives inside of you and he's saved you. You know what? He's worthy of all your effort and all your love and devotion. And if that's an unpopular message, then so it is. How about number three? Go to uh, 10. Uh, go to chapter 10, I should say. Look at verse 9. It's all in the book of Exodus. It's all right there in the beginning. Amen. Exodus 10, look at verse 9. Here's compromise number three. Compromise number three. All right? Uh, where am I? Let's think of verse 9. And Moses said... We will go with our young and with our old, with our sons and with our daughters, with our flocks and with our herds will we go. For we must hold a feast unto the Lord. And he said unto them, Let the Lord be so with you as I will let you go. And your little ones look to it, for evil is before you. Not so. Go now ye that are men and serve the Lord. You know what the third compromise is? Leave your children in Egypt. Leave your children with me. You want to go have your little Jesus? You want to go have your little Bible study? Don't push that stuff on the children. 
Don't indoctrinate the children. Just let them sit in front of the boob tube for 12 hours a day and let somebody else indoctrinate them. But don't you wash their brains out with the Bible. How dare you, you barbaric, Neolithic monsters, you, right? No, God says, train up a child in the way he should go, right? So, I mean, I covet my children. I am, I, I am, I am jealous over my children. I think you should be too, because God is jealous over you. But the devil says, oh, just let the children stay with me. And then the last compromise is in chapter 10, verse 24. Isn't it amazing? All this stuff's right there in Exodus, right there, sitting there in plain sight. 24. Compromise number four. And Pharaoh called unto Moses and said, Go ye, serve the Lord, only let your flocks and your herds be stayed. Let your little ones also go with you. I'll let the kids go. And Moses said, Thou must give us also sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice unto the Lord our God. Our cattle also shall go with us. There shall not an hoof be left behind, for thereof must we take to serve the Lord our God. And we know not with what we must serve the Lord until we come hither. You know what the devil says? Leave your cattle behind. Leave your stuff behind. Hold on to your time. Hold on to your resources. Don't give those to God. Those are yours. You worked hard for your money. right? You did all that stuff. It's all yours. Don't give any to missions. Now, what are you, crazy? You're crazy. My mom used to go through my checkbook and scream at me, what are you giving to them over there? I don't know. I feel like if God's got a hold of your heart and you want to help somebody, you, nobody's making an account here. I'm not calling anybody names out. But look, if God's got your heart, he'll get your wallet. <laughs> If God's got your heart, he'll get your time. If God's got your heart, he'll get your talents. But the devil says, you can go, but just don't take your stuff. Don't give your stuff to God. And you know why I didn't want them to take the cattle? Because they were going to sacrifice with the blood with the cattle. And he didn't want them to sacrifice with the blood. You can go do a little preaching, but don't preach on the blood. Don't talk about the blood. Don't get into the blood. Don't talk about that bloody religion. Don't talk about the blood of Jesus Christ. Don't talk about the blood that was shed for sins. Don't talk about forgiveness is only through the blood. Don't do that. That's what the world is saying. You know that, right? All these new Bibles and all these new churches, they don't want to talk about the blood. Can I tell you honestly, the Bible's a bloody book. And it's a bloody faith. And if you went and saw that tabernacle in the Old Testament, it was a bloody scene. That sand around the tabernacle was stained with blood from all those sacrifices. And this book you hold in your hands is a bloody book. It's soaked with the blood of men and women who gave their lives to preserve the Bible that you can have today. So the devil says, oh, don't say that, Pat. You're going to lose your likes on YouTube. You're going to turn people off if you talk about the blood. But the Bible says without shedding of blood is no remission. So God makes a big deal about the blood, and the devil hates the blood because Revelation says they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, right? That blood is his doom. So the devil's always going to say, well, bees up on the blood, man. Back the truck up on the blood. We should go full forward on the blood, right? So that's the adversary. Now let's get to the great chapter 12 of Exodus. Let's break this chapter apart now. Chapter 12 is a great chapter, right? It's chapter 12 is salvation through the blood of the Lamb. Amen? Some people have called it the gospel according to Exodus in, the, in, in, in Exodus chapter 12. Let's look at it, okay? Let's look at Exodus 12, 1 and 2. And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. I see a bunch of things here about the Passover lamb that tell us about our salvation. First thing I see was, it was a new beginning for the nation. 
And isn't Jesus Christ a new beginning for you? A new beginning. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Not a new creation, a new creature. Right? He's a new creature. And God gives... Israel's calendar was different before this time. God moved April to be the beginning of their year, and he says, now the Passover is going to be the beginning of your year. That's why I'm going to start you off now at that Passover, because spiritually, that's where your nation was rescued. And that's where you might have a birthday when your physical life started, but your spiritual life started when you trusted Jesus Christ. And he said, this is going to be your spiritual birthday. This is going to be your beginning as far as God is concerned. That's number one. Now look at verse number three. Speak ye unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month they shall take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for an house. And if the household be too little for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next unto his house take it according to the number of the souls. Every man, according to his eating, shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. He shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats. We've heard this message many times, those of us from Staten Island, but that great outline, a lamb, the lamb, your lamb. That first you need to see that there is a sacrifice that's required for your sin. You need a lamb. You need a payment for your sin. That's the first thing you got to see. Then the second thing you need to see is that God selected who that payment was going to be. It isn't you. It isn't me. It isn't this guy. It isn't that guy. It's Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by Him. You need to see that God selected Jesus Christ. Christ to be the lamb, and then that lamb needs to become your lamb. He needs to become special to you. The Bible says Jesus Christ is the Savior of all men, especially of those that believe. Now, I had heard about Jesus Christ for 20 years, but when I called upon Him at the end of my rope 24 years ago, that gives you my age, right? But uh, that's when Jesus Christ became my lamb. Is he your lamb? I hope he's your lamb. You need a lamb. He is the lamb, and he's got to become your lamb if you're going to be saved. That's a great outline in that verse right there. And watch something really interesting about your Bible. See verse 3? In verse 3, they took the lamb on what day? On the 10th day. They took the lamb on the 10th day. And you see verse number 6? You shall keep it up until the 14th day. How many days is that? Four, right? The last time I did math, not the new math, not common core math, but basic math, 14 minus 10 is four. I got a master's degree. I could figure that much out. You say, what does that tell me, Pat? Well, it took four days of preparation for the lamb. And it took 4,000 years before Jesus Christ came. If one day is with the Lord is 1,000 years, then it took 4,000 years for Jesus Christ to show up on this earth. You say, well, that's an accident. You're smoking crack if you think that's an accident, right? Is that, is that plain enough for you at home? How you doing, guys? All right, I'll be here all week. But I mean, that's not an accident. That's a minute detail that God put in there that shows you that Jesus Christ took 4,000 years to show up and be slain for our sins. But keep going, verse 6. And you shall keep it up until the 14th day of the same month, and the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. You know the nation of Israel called for the Lamb's death. 
It's just the truth. I'm not, I don't promote anti-Semitism. That stuff's wicked. The Bible says, love the Jewish people. God blesses those that bless them. And, but let's make no bones about, about it. It was that crowd that said, crucify him, crucify him. It was that crowd that said, his blood be upon us and upon our children. And God says right there, the whole congregation of the children of Israel shall kill it. And the nation of Israel was calling for the lamb's death, like they would kill the lamb in the evening. What did Stephen say? When Stephen was preaching, his first and only message, he spoke about the just one of whom ye have been now the betrayers and murderers. You know why they didn't like Stephen's message? Because he pointed a finger at the leaders of Israel and said, you killed your Messiah. They locked up Peter because he said the same thing. You killed the prince of life. He was accusing them of, of deicide, of murdering their, their Messiah. And they were, they were calling for that, that murder. Now watch verse number 7, or that death, I should say. Verse 7, And they shall take of the blood and strike it on the two side posts and on the upper door post of the houses wherein they shall eat. You know what you see right there? Just another miracle of the Bible. You see the three crosses. Because if this was your door, right? If this was your door, right? God says, I want you to put some blood here and some blood here and some blood here. One, two, three. But this one was a little higher than those two, wasn't he? Jesus Christ was crucified between two thieves, but he was much higher than those two thieves ever was. You say, oh, you're just reaching, Pat. No, I'm just scratching the surface. When you get to heaven and God opens the Bible up to you, you're going to realize that even the commas were ordained by the Holy Spirit. And you're like, wow, that even said something about Jesus? Yeah, three crosses, right? Take the blood, put it here, put it here, and put it here. And this one is above the other two because Jesus Christ was crucified between two thieves and he's higher than those two thieves. Go to verse number nine. Keep reading. Verse number nine, it says, Eat not of it raw, nor sodden at all with water, but roast with fire, his head with his legs, and with the pertinence thereof. You see there that this lamb was going to be a male, and he was going to face the fire, and he was not to have any water. Didn't you recall your Savior saying, I thirst? You know why? Because he was standing in the place of the sinner, who would be going to a place where there is no water. You read about that rich man in hell, and he says, Send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. And your Savior cried, I thirst, to show that he was taking the place of your condemned state and making his soul an offering for sin, and he would step into a place where there was no water. And that male without blemish would face the fire. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Lord. All right. Try holding your hand over a flame for a little while. See how long you could take it. Probably not too long. Ever seen a burn victim? I have, right? Not a pleasant way. Not a pleasant way to go. And uh, you thank God you're saved. He saved you from hell. He didn't save you from being a better person. He saved you from hell. He saved you from the fires of God's wrath. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Look at verse 11. Verse 11 now. All right? And thus shall ye eat it with your loins girded, your shoes on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. He says, eat the Passover with shoes on your feet. Isn't that strange? Don't kick your shoes off. I want your shoes to be on your feet when you eat this Passover. You say, why? Because after salvation, number one, you're supposed to be ready to leave. 
you're supposed to be ready to go because this life down here after you're saved is just a sojourn. We're just a passing through. So keep your shoes on your feet because at any moment he's going to blow the trumpet and you're out of here. Right? We're not supposed to put our tent stakes in too deep as Pastor Mel used to say. So that's the first thing I get from the fact that he said you received that Passover lamb with your shoes on because that Passover lamb, he's making you a stranger and a pilgrim. You're getting out of Egypt very soon. You know what he says, number two, what it also shows me? That you should be ready to serve God after you're saved. Because doesn't Ephesians tell us that your feet should be shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace? You should be ready after you're saved to preach the gospel. Everybody in here should be able to do that. You say, well, Pat, I'm saved a month or a year or five years and I'm not a pastor. So what? You know how you got saved. If you know how to get saved, you could tell somebody else how to get saved. That's very simple, very easy. You don't have to tell me what salvation's like in the tribulation and what's the difference between a seraphim and a cherubim. None of that's going to get anybody to heaven. You know what's going to get somebody to heaven? Show them that they're a sinner. Show them there is a Savior. And show them by faith they can receive that Savior. Everybody who's saved should know how to do that. Because the Bible says your feet should be shod like those Israelites had their feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. What are you going to do if you're at a deathbed? And somebody's getting ready to breathe their last. And you're, you're going to hum and a hum and a hum. What are you going to do? You can't, you can't get me on the phone. What are you going to do? you got to be prepared to be able to tell us, have a track in your pocket that you can at least read to them, right? Quote John 3, 16, something. And then, of course, verse 13 is the great verse. Verse 13 is where we get our song, When I see the blood, and the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. For it is the blood, the Bible says, that maketh an atonement for the soul. Amen? Now, that's like leading you up to salvation. Now let's go to chapter 13. First verse, see it? Chapter 13, verse 1. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Sanctify unto me all the firstborn. Can I tell you, chapter 13 is about their sanctification. That is the first command after the blood of the Lamb was applied. Sanctify. That's the first thing God says to a redeemed people rescued by the blood of the Lamb. He says, Sanctify. Count the letters in sanctify. There's eight of them because you have a new beginning and a new direction and a new will for your lives after you get washed in the blood. He doesn't just say, oh, you're washed in the blood? Now just go experiment a little bit and go just live your life and find your truth and you do you. No, he says, sanctify yourself. Get the junk that I rescued you from out of your life now. That's what sanctification is. Set yourself apart now unto God and come to learn and know this blessed Savior. The Bible says, come out from among them and be ye separate saith the Lord. That's sanctification, that you would love God enough and want to pay God enough back that you would say, Lord, I'm going to step away from my devilment and I'm going to come and learn about you and be close to you and follow you and grow closer to you. If that's not in you, one, do a temperature check and make sure you're saved. Two, I can't help you. 
Because if there's not that natural affection, that if a guy took a bullet for you and he says, I'd like you just to come around once a week and like have coffee with me, and you're like, oh, I can't do that. That's oppressive. That's so... I've got to do my laundry. And he's like, I took a bullet for you. I just want you to come around once in a while and talk to me. And you think that's onerous that God put that on you. I don't know how to reason with you. I don't know how to reason with you. You just, honestly, I love you to death. I love all you guys at the choir. I'm preaching to the choir. I mean this for all the other people. But I mean, you're just an unthankful ingrate. I mean, how, how can you see somebody take a bullet for you and get whipped within an inch of his life and face the fires of hell? And he says, I'd like you just to fellowship with me a little while. Oh, no, I can't do that. I've got to have brunch with my third cousin. Right? Okay, all right, all right, cool, man. But at the judgment seat of Christ, there'll be a reckoning, and God will say, remember all those times that you could have been with me? So God says, hey, sanctify yourself for me if you love me enough. And then chapter 14 is that great crossing of the Red Sea. And the crossing of the Red Sea tells us about Israel's baptism. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 10 in our New Testament, shall we? 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians 10. That Red Sea was a baptism. It was a separation for the nation of Israel from the rest of the world. 1 Corinthians 10, the Bible says, Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So God lifted those waters up and kind of like they were like over them and they walked right through that and God said, you went through the water. It was like a baptism for that nation. It was like a separation of them from the world. Even though they were washed in the blood, they had to have this baptism where God separated them from the world. You say, why? Because even though they were redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, guess who was still, still after them? Pharaoh was still after them. He was still going to chase them down. He didn't care if they were washed in the blood. He was going to drag them by their nose, put some bricks in their hands, and say, keep serving me. And brethren, you could be washed in the blood of the Lamb, but if you don't separate yourself from the world, guess what? The devil is still going to be after you, and if he can't get your soul, he'll just get your life and make your life be used to serve him and not serve God, and he'll still be happy. If he can't get your soul, you know, if he can't beat you, he's just going to join you and just try to get you in with his mess. So that's a great picture there about the enemy still pursuing. And go to chapter 15 again of Exodus. We making any sense so far? I know I'm doing some low-level flying here, but that's why it's recorded. So you can can do it again. I'm just going to like buckshot, I said, just shoot all this stuff at you. And uh, we'll enjoy it. Exodus 15. Uh, So remember, this is our Christian life now, right? So here is like everything up to here is leading to salvation. And all this is leading out after salvation, right? A sanctification, a separation from the world. And in Exodus 15, 1, you know what happens? Then sang Moses and the children of Israel this song. You know what God gives the redeemed people? A new song. Anybody got a new song? I got a new song since I've been saved. The Bible says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. 
whom the Lord hath redeemed from the hand of the enemy. And if you could look back and see Pharaoh's chariots drown, you know what? You should sing on Sunday morning. You shouldn't look like a dead frog in church, like, you know, you know, you should, I don't know what dead frogs do. I totally just am making all this up. But, uh, you know, you should sing. When I used to be in religion, those of us that used to be in religion, you didn't sing in church. One person stood up at the front and sang the cantor, and they sang, and it was the most awful thing in the world. That's why you showed up late so you'd miss it and just get your little thing and go home. You know what the Bible says? On a Sunday morning when we gather, there should be a song. Amazing grace. When I see the blood redeemed, how I love to proclaim it. Uh, Sing of my Redeemer, right? Because God's people, when they saw God's deliverance, they sang. And David wrote, He hath put a new song in my heart, even praise unto our God. If God has saved you, there's a song in there. The day can be lousy, but when you start thinking about heaven, you say, what a wonderful change in my life has been wrought since Jesus came into my heart. It can be really lousy, but a good song can just drive that bad spirit away. A good Christian song, like a good spiritual song from our hymnal, something about like a mighty fortress. When we think of all that bad stuff and Josh said a mighty fortress, you know what Martin Luther said? Let us shame the devil by singing a hymn. And Martin Luther wrote A Mighty Fortress, and Martin Luther was hounded by that devil for years and years. He said, I saw him standing in my study one time, and I threw my inkwell at him. He says he felt the presence of the devil hounding him, and Martin Luther said, let's sing and shame the devil and spite the devil, because it drives that devil away and that spirit away. And the people of God sing when they see Pharaoh destroyed, and you should sing. Amen. Amen. And then we get to chapter 16. You know what you need besides a song? Because the song will fade. And then you go home. You need manna. And manna from heaven is a picture of the Word of God. It's food for their journey in the wilderness. And this book is your food for your journey in this wilderness. It's all right there in the book of Exodus. Let me show you some things about manna. Look at verse number 4. Let me show you about manna. Number 4, verse 4. Then said the Lord unto Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you. You know what God did first? The manna was supernatural. It was sent from God. The Bible says all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Peter And John and Ezekiel didn't think these things up while they were just like smoking the reefer next to some sheep. You know what? This was God inspiring them saying, write this down, write that down. Number two about that manna, it was the source of their strength. That's what they were supposed to feed on. Not the radio, not YouTube, not even someone else's preaching. They had to get the manna themselves and get strength out of it. I'm glad you come to church. I'm glad you're here at Bible study. I'm appreciative that you're listening to me and maybe taking notes and giving me some moments of your valuable time. I do appreciate that. But you know what's going to give you real strength? When you get the manna yourself and it gets inside your bones and your heart and your mind. That's number two. Number three, look at verse five. See the end of verse five? They gather daily. The manna was supposed to be gathered every day, except the last day, the seventh day. But every day, you were supposed to get fresh manna. You can't go a bunch of days without reading your Bible and expect to be victorious. You're going to get weak. You're going to make mistakes. Your, your fuse is going to get short. 
your victory is going to get lost, and them sins like weeds are going to come creeping back into your garden. You got to get fresh manna every day because if you left it out, it's spoiled. You had to get new manna. You can't live off yesterday's manna, the old preachers would say. You need new manna every day. Look at verse number 13. Let me show you something else about the manna. And it came to pass that even the quails came up, because they wanted a burger too, and covered the camp. And in the morning the dew lay round about the host. And when the dew that lay was gone up, behold, upon the face of the wilderness there lay a small round thing, as small as the hoarfrost on the ground. And when the children of Israel saw it, they said one to another, It is manna. For they wist not what it was. And Moses said unto them, This is the bread which the Lord hath given you to eat. Can I show you? The manna came to where they were. They didn't have to go search it out or get it off a locked Bible on a pulpit somewhere like they used to do in the Middle Ages. They'd lock the Bible up and didn't let you read it. No, God brought the word into the common language. That King James Bible is sixth grade English. It's 75% one-syllable words, and God put it right down there where anybody could get it. It's the most readable Bible on the market is your beloved King James Bible. The most musical, the most easy to memorize, and the most readable is the King James Bible because God brought the word to where you were. He didn't make you climb a mountain or go on some weird pilgrimage or like get up on the top of a place and go on some strange hodge or something like that. He said, I'm going to put the Bible on the common language for the common man. What a, what a wonderful God. Verse number 17. And we got people in other parts of the world. I'll show you the pictures that are like this, reaching for a copy of the Bible. And you've probably got more than you can count on one hand. And there's people reaching for Bibles like this. There's people in China smuggling Bibles. There's people in Africa that wish they had a Bible like you have. Thank God for the Bible. Verse number 17. Verse 17. And the children of Israel did so and gathered some more, some less. You know what the manna? You know the difference is in somebody's victory? How much manna do you get? Some people got a lot and some people got a little. And I bet the people that got a lot were really strong. And I bet bet the people that got a little were a little strong. You say, you want to be a strong Christian? Get a lot of the book. You want to be a weak Christian? Don't get a lot of the book. It's that easy. It's up to you. Nobody's going to force you or fight you or shove the Bible down your throat. But they're going to say, if you want a lot of victory, get a lot of Bible. Look at verse number 32. Something else about the manna. 32. 32. And Moses said, This is the thing which the Lord commandeth. Fill an omer of it to be kept for your generations, that they may see the bread wherewith I have fed you in the wilderness. Can I tell you, manna was not supposed to just be watched. The manna was supposed to be eaten. They were supposed to do something with the manna. Don't just pick it up and stare at it and put it on a shelf. They were supposed to take it in and eat it and do something with it. Why? Because the Bible is meant to be applied. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. God says, do something with this book that I've given you. Read it, apply it, and do the things that you understand. And finally, verse 33, And Moses said unto Aaron, Take a pot and put an omer full of manna therein, and lay it up before the Lord to be kept for your generations. Some manna was supernaturally preserved. You've got the manna that's been supernaturally preserved in your King James Bible. God preserved it for you 
supernaturally, like he gave it supernaturally. Amen? That's the manna. Now, go back to Exodus 17. We're hurrying right along here. We're going to make it. Don't worry. We're going to make it. Exodus 17. We're right there, right? right? Exodus 17 is the battle of Rephidim. You know what the battle of Rephidim shows us? The next part of your spiritual journey with God, it's the warfare by prayer. Amen. How prayer is a part of your spiritual warfare. Right? Amalek shows up. Moses in this story pictures you, the, the follower of God. Joshua Pictures Christ. He's down there fighting Amalek. The um, Amalek is a type of the flesh. This body of yours that betrays you and tries to frustrate God's work in your life. And you know what those uplifted hands of Moses picture? They picture prayer. They picture intercession. And if you look at verse number 11, look what happens. And it came to pass when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And he would let down his hand Amalek prevailed. You know what that tells me? When Moses lifted up his hand down in the valley, Joshua would fight and they'd win. And then we let down his hands, Joshua would back would retreat and they would lose. Because you know what? When you pray, you know what Jesus Christ does? He fights for you. And you can overcome this flesh. But when you don't pray, guess what? The flesh gets the advantage over you. It's right there in the book of Exodus. It's part of your journey with God. It's part of your way to get victory. And in verse number 12, look what happens. But Moses' hands were heavy, and they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat thereon, and Aaron and Hur stayed up his hands, the one on the one side and the other on the other side. You know what happens, brethren? When you get weary, find other people to pray with you. Get some other people to pray for you. Aaron and her are holding up Moses' hands. That's a little prayer meeting they were having there. I'm glad you pray for me, but sometimes we come together on a Tuesday or on a Sunday morning. Or we, some of us get here even a little bit early. You know what? We come together to pray because these little prayer meetings, the ladies' fellowship, the prayer groups that the ladies have, those things are ways for us to hold up each other's hands so we can get victory over the flesh. Man, God put it right there for us. Right there, that's how you win the battle. What did Paul tell Timothy? I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting, just like Moses lifted up his hands in the battle. And isn't it an amazing book? I don't know. I mean, I mean, you might be you might be bored to tears, just faking it. Oh yeah, it's great. You know, just whatever. But I think it's an amazing book. I think God's worthy to be like Lord. That you should just go home tonight and say, Lord. That is an amazing book you wrote there, Lord. Because chapter 18 then, you're serving God a little bit. You know what's going to happen? You're going to start ministering to people. And chapter 18 is about dealing with people. And you know what it's really about? All the bad advice you get on how to minister to people. (laughs) And there's a lot of bad advice out there. Just take my word for it, all right? Uh, Hey, Moses did well when he did everything by God's wisdom. You know what Moses was doing? Moses was going to God about everything. The big things and the little things. You know what? They did okay. That's, that's God's wisdom. God says everything. You want to know how to dress? Come to me. You want to know how to get the right spouse? Come to me. You want to know how to be a good employee? Come to me. I'll take care of everything. Be careful for nothing. But you know what old Jethro came around? Jethro said, hey, man, you don't have to worry about the little things. You're going to burn out, Moses. You don't need to go to God about everything, just the big things. And Moses did well when he did everything by God's wisdom, and Moses messed up when he listened to Jethro, a type of man's wisdom. And that generation 
didn't go into the promised land. Because little things become big problems if you don't get God to deal with them. And chapter 18 shows us that. Chapter 19 to 24 is pretty easy. That's the law. That's God's standard of holiness. And you read through the law, and you see that God's law is non-negotiable. He is not, like, dipping the colors anywhere. And then finally, you get to chapter 25 to 40, and you get the work of the ministry. Now Moses gets to work. Chapters 25 to 27 is all about the tabernacle. Tabernacle is all about you making your way to God. Those seven pieces of furniture. That's a study in itself. From the brazen altar, which is a type of sacrifice, all the way to the mercy seat, which is a type of that intimate communion with God. That's what chapters 25 to 27 are about. How you can make your way to God and approach unto God. Chapters 28 to 31 are about the priesthood. It's all about you mediating for God. Because once you go to God, then you've got to go to men for God. And that's what 28 to 31 is about. And then 32 to 40 <laughs> is all about managing the drawbacks with God. Because it's about the delays and the sin and the golden calf and the complaining and who's going to bring the metal and who's going to bring the stuff for the tabernacle. And it's all about managing all these things you've got to do when you serve God. So can I finish with, can I just give you a finish here, a conclusion? Can I give you, can you go back to Exodus 1? And I want to just finish with two big ideas from the book of Exodus. There's a lot more we could say, but that's a good outline now. And let me just give you a little touch of preaching. I'll take maybe a few minutes here. Just what are some big ideas from the book of Exodus that we can go home on? I got two. First big idea. Ready? This world is not your home. It's not your home. It's the book of Exodus. You know what it sounds like to me? Exit us. We're getting out of here. It's an exit for us. We are getting out of here. Why do we have to get out of here? Why is this world not our home? Exodus 1.8, number one. Now there arose up a new king over Egypt, which knew not Joseph. Number one, this world is not your home because it has a leader that is not your Lord Jesus Christ. The leader of this world is the devil himself, and he knows nothing of Jesus Christ's mercy. He knows nothing of Jesus Christ's love. He knows nothing of Jesus Christ's grace. He knows nothing of Jesus Christ's ways. Why would you follow someone who is completely antithetical to everything that your Savior is like? The world should make you uncomfortable. You should be uncomfortable at the business party. You should be uncomfortable with unsaved friends. You should be a little bit uncomfortable. I'm not saying you got to be like a hermit, but there should be something that says, i got to witness to these people. What's wrong with these people? This is so sad. There's got to be something. Why? Because they're following a leader that's leading them away from the Savior. Jesus Christ is typified by Joseph, and this king over the world does not know your Joseph. He does not know your Savior. He is nothing like him. Why would you follow him? Number two, look at verse 13. And the Egyptians made the children of Israel to serve with rigor. And they made their lives bitter with hard bondage in mortar and in brick and in all manner of service in the field. All their service wherein they made them serve was with rigor. Number one, the world is not our home because of its leader. And number two, because of the labor and the bondage that it puts you through. They just want to grind you down and grind you out and make you build pyramids for them. They don't care for your Lord. They just want to use you and spit you out. That's why this world is not your home. 
They put you in bondage by birth because you're born into it, and they put you in bondage by all the bitterness of life that they pile on top of it after it. They made those children of Israel serve with rigor. They weren't benevolent little sovereigns. They were nasty taskmasters over them. And that's what the world is like to you. Just wants to get their pound of flesh out of you and just spit you out. You think they love you? They'll embrace you when you help them. And when they're done with you, they'll kick you to the curb. That's how the world is because they don't care. And number three, verse number 15. And the king of Egypt spake to the Hebrew midwives, of which the name of the one was Shifra, and the name of the other Puah. And he said, when ye do the office of a midwife to the Hebrew women, see them upon the stools, if it be a son, then ye shall kill him. But if it be a daughter, then shall she live, then she shall live. You know why this world is not your home? Because the God of this world wants to ruin your future. He wants no future for the people of God. He wants to destroy their future right there and make sure the children of Israel never go on another generation. You know what the devil wants to do to you? He wants to ruin your future. He can't change your soul if you're saved, but if you're not saved, he wants to see you in hell and he'll laugh while you're going. And if you are saved, he'd like to ruin your family. He'd like to ruin your health. He'd like to take away all your rewards and that great eternity that God has reserved for you. He'd like to steal and rob and pillage anything God has laid up for you. That's the devil that some of us go and run and follow his ways. He says, I want to destroy your future like he destroyed their future. This world is not your home. You should feel uncomfortable, I hope. I should feel uncomfortable. And if the last two years haven't made you feel like this world is not your home, you just haven't been paying attention. All right? Let me show you how the world feels about you. Go to Genesis chapter 43. My last two verses here. Uh, almost. I don't want to make a liar out of myself. Genesis 43. Ready? The world calls you and your ways an abomination. That's how they feel about you. Genesis 43 verse 32. Look at it. Genesis 43, 32. And they said on him for himself and for them by themselves and for the Egyptians which did eat with him by themselves because the Egyptians might not eat bread with the Hebrews. Egypt doesn't want any of your bread. They don't want to sit and have fellowship around that book. They don't want to sit and read the Bible with you. They don't want to sit and here preaching like you do. They want no bread like you want that bread. The world says that's abominable. Oh, get that thing. How dare you put that on my doorknob, right? That's the world. We get people, how dare? If it was a Chinese food menu, you'd be like, all right, thank you. I'll try the Mughal guy pan, right? But no, you put a Bible track on my door. How dare, guy was indignant to Brian today, yesterday. How dare you? How dare you put that in? You know, my goodness, man, you're going to give yourself a heart attack, bro. Why don't you just relax? You got a garbage can? Throw it in the garbage, all right? I'll throw it out for you, okay? How dare you? The world says that Bible is an abomination to them. They don't want any part of it. Pastor Mel used to say back in the day when you could have empty seats on a plane, when he wanted an empty seat next to him, he'd stick his Bible on the seat next to him and nobody would take the seat because the world sees that. They're like, ah, it's like, you know, oh. you know they freak out. It makes them nervous. 
right? We were at the church in the park a few weeks ago, and we were preaching out loud, and somebody bumped into Marie Colleen up by the bathroom and said, I got to get caught in that crossfire. Like, it's like the worst thing in the world they heard, right, is a Bible verse or saw a Bible sign, right? That's the world. They don't want your bread. They don't want to fellowship with you around that bread like you do. How about chapter 46? I'll show you what else they don't want. They don't want any of your word that God gave you. And in Genesis 46, verse 34, Look at the end of the verse of 34. The Bible says, Every shepherd is an abomination unto the Egyptians. You know what else they don't want? They want none of your ways. Because God's ways are a shepherd. Right? Jesus Christ is the good shepherd. Right? Moses was a shepherd. You know, a lot, Joseph was a shepherd. Right? These guys, David was a shepherd. God has something about being a shepherd. Right? The Lord is my shepherd. The Egyptians say, oh, shepherds? That way of life? Ugh, I don't want that. That's an abomination to us. They want none of your word. They want none of your ways. They want none of God's words. They want none of God's ways. This world is not your home. Amen. Let's finish in Galatians, shall we? Galatians. Galatians, Galatians 1. You know what Jesus Christ did to get you out of this world? He died to deliver you from this world. Galatians 1.3. Grace be to you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God and our Father. Jesus Christ actually died to get you out of this wicked world. He calls it an evil world. You know what your response should be? Go to chapter 6. Thank you as part of it. Yeah, You know how you thank Him? Chapter 6, verse 14. Same book. Chapter 6, verse 14. But God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. God says, I sent my son to die to get you out of the world. You need to die to the world. And if Jesus Christ died to get you out of this world, why aren't you dead to this world yet? I'm not saying you don't go to work tomorrow. I'm just saying your heart is not married to this world anymore. You're not following their ways, their, their Lord, their anything. Because if you've applied the blood of the Lamb, and let me hear, if you've, if you applied, all right, if you've applied the blood of the Lamb, your exodus is coming. Very soon, the good shepherd's going to come, and he's going to part the sea up there, and we're going to walk out on dry ground, right? And we're going to go to our promised land. So don't get too, too comfortable down here because this world is not your home. And we're not going to look at any verses, but this is the second thing I want to say, that if the world is not your home, second big idea, there could be no compromise with the world. If the world is not your home, there could be no compromise with the world. There could be no compromise in salvation. Whatever the world says about salvation, I don't care. They want to say it's religion. They want us to say it's a sacrament. They want to say it's a ritual. They want to say you got to do this. You got to think this. You got to follow this guy's book. Sorry, I'm not compromising with you. I'm not shouldering up with you. The Bible says only by the blood of Jesus Christ are our sins cleansed away and by faith in Jesus Christ. And we're going to preach that. And if they lock us up, you better man up because that's the Bible gospel. That's what we've got to stand for. We can't dip the colors. 
Right? What are you? Are you this? Are you that? What camp are you from? I'm not from a camp. I'm just trying to follow the Bible. Amen. And come hell or high water, I think Jesus Christ is worthy enough to not dip the colors. I wouldn't let the kids drop an American flag on the floor. I think that's disrespectful and wrong. I'm sure, as you know what, not going to let the Bible fall on the floor. Amen. I'm sure not going to let somebody pervert the gospel and walk into our church and try to pervert the way of salvation and get people. That just strips my gears. That gets my Gatling gun out. I'm ready to shoot my Tommy gun and just take everybody out. I got enough verses tucked in my mind. You think I talk fast now? Just wait till you see me in that setting. I'll spit the verses out so fast. I'll have that guy running down the street because you know what? You got, I'm not saying be mean like that, but, but you got to earnestly contend for the faith. This is the precious gospel. You know what else I'm not going to compromise on? The book. I'm not compromising on this book. There could be no compromise with the world when it comes to the scriptures. You know, somebody read me Colossians 1.14. Just somebody find it. Read it nice and loud so the recording hears it. Find Colossians 1.14 for me so I don't buzz the microphone. I got over here, I got a new international version. All right, I got a new international version. Hey, somebody, here, read me, uh, read me Colossians 1.14 right there in this new international version right there. What's it say? It says 1.14 is here. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You know what phrase came out? Through his blood, right? I'm not, this is a, that is a piece of trash, right? That deserves to be burned. Because there's a spirit behind that book that wants to remove the blood. Oh, Pat, that's, that's a little uncouth. No, but that's, you got to have a little of that in you because God says that book is precious and his blood is precious. I would never put my Bible on the floor. I got no problem stepping on that because that is not God's Bible. Amen. This is God's Bible, Amen. right? And there's no compromise, right? There's no compromise in service. You know what the book of Exodus teaches you? That after you get saved, you got to fight some battles. It's not going to be smooth. It's not going to be easy. you got to fight the good fight of faith. You can't compromise and take the easy road. Exodus says there's no compromise with the world. you got to fight the good fight of faith. you got to resist. you got to endure. you got to stay the course. you got to continue thou. There's no compromise. That's the way God said it has to be. And then lastly, number three and finally, there's no compromise in standards. It's got to be by the book and only by the book, whether it's your marriage, the way you think, the way you run a church service, the way you pick a deacon, the way you get rid of a pastor, whatever it is, you got to do it by the book. If it's not by the book, God says, Ichabod, (laughs) glory is departed. You get a lot from that book of Exodus, I know. Praise the Lord for the book of Exodus, the book of redemption, God saving you from this world and saving you from yourselves. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we love you today. We thank you today. And we just pray, Lord, in Jesus' name.